this is an, a dumb old preacher's joke, and I recognize that, but it gets me to where I want to go um, here in a second. Um, it's one day Moses and Jesus and an old man were out playing golf, uh, and they got to a water hole, and Moses was the first person to tee off. And so he took his shot, and it landed squarely in the water. But Moses, being Moses, just parted the water, walked into the uh, dry ground there, and uh, took his second shot and landed it near the cup, and he walked on. Jesus was next up to tee off, and uh, he took his shot, and it also ended up in the same place in the water. But Jesus just walked out onto the water and took his second shot and put it nearer to the cup than Moses had. The old man stepped up and took his shots. He also landed in almost the exact same spot as Moses and Jesus had in the middle of the water. But a frog came by, picked up the ball, and it started to hop away when an eagle came swooping down on it and picked up the frog and then flew over the green. And as it flew over the green, the frog dropped the ball and it bounced and then it bounced into the cup for a perfect hole in one. Moses then turns to Jesus and says, I hate playing golf with your father. Um, That is a dumb joke, I recognize that, but it connects two people that I want us to talk about today. Uh, I think the value of talking about Moses and Jesus is, is good, because the relationship in your Bible between Jesus and Moses is one that can't be missed or underestimated. As we think of our theme that we're in this Christmas time, adventually, we're looking at all of these uh, several Old Testament promises in which there's some promise made that eventually Jesus fulfills. And so the promise that we're going to look at today comes from the time and the life of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. And uh, it says this. This is God speaking to Israel through Moses. I will raise up for them, I will raise up for Israel, my people, a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses and all that he did was foundational to uh, Old Testament Israelite society. All right, if you keep reading from the time of Moses forward, Everything in that culture was built around what Moses taught them, what Moses gave them in the law, his example, and his name, and his reputation. So from the priestly sacrificial, sacrificial system, to the temple, to the laws, to their societal structure and organization, how they handled things, was all built upon what Moses had brought them from God. And so when God made a promise that one like him would come, That was an important promise. But that was 1,500 years before Jesus. And so for 1,500 years or so, many good prophets came on the scene in Israel. You've got your your Samuels, and you've got your uh, Jeremiah's and Isaiah's, and lots of good prophets came, and they spoke God's word. But they all struggled in their own sinfulness and their own flaws. But then Jesus showed up, and, and he went to great efforts to show to anybody that was listening that his life paralleled the life of Moses. And just like Moses' ministry and life and teachings would be foundational for Israelite culture to build upon, Jesus says he is a new foundation built upon Moses, actually, to continue to grow and to build and to build our lives on. 
And so part of the reason that Jesus became such a key and controversial person was his claim that he was the new Moses. And as you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, you find an intentional emphasis to connect Jesus and Moses so that anybody who listened to him and was paying attention um, would make these connections that, boy, this guy seems to be fulfilling this new prophet thing that Moses predicted and that we've been waiting for all this time. You can't help but see the connections that the writers are trying to make with Moses. And so this one simple statement maybe summarizes what we want to say today, that the extraordinary life of Moses, and Moses' life was extraordinary in so many ways, not that he was superhuman, but just the things he experienced, his ups and downs, his relationship with God, the things that God used him to do. The extraordinary life of Moses was but a shadow to the even more extraordinary life of Jesus. And so Moses lives an extraordinary life, and yet it's all a shadow that you look forward to and you see the bigger reality that Moses' life was even pointing to, and it's, it's Jesus who lived an even more extraordinary life. Now, shadows are funny things. Shadows are simply a representation of a real thing. Um, for example, if you're walking in the morning when the sun's just coming up or in the evening when the sun is just going down uh, and, that's, and the sun hits you, your shadow will probably be long and tall and skinny and maybe you've dreamed of being that your whole life. And so that shadow looks, I wish I was long, tall and skinny like that. Um, if you're in the middle of the day, it may look like you're a little squashed and round in the middle and that's okay. You can be all of those things depending on the time of the day and the sun that you're in. Um, but a shadow isn't the real thing. A shadow is a, a representation. It's a, it's a figure based upon a real thing. And so while Moses' life was real and Moses did all these things, his life was pointing forward to someone else and that person was Jesus. And so just consider a few connections. I've got six of them on the list here. Uh, these may uh, just help you to think, if you were to just take out Matthew's gospel and just read through it and think, um, why does Matthew structure his gospel the way he does? Part of the answer to that is, is he's trying to show these Jewish people he's writing to that Jesus is the Moses character that we've been waiting for all these years. And so some examples. For example, number one, both Moses and Jesus were saved in Egypt from a tyrannical leader. Um, remember, Moses is in Egypt and things are not going well. Uh, someone wants to kill him. Someone's angry at him. He doesn't like Moses and his people, and that would be Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, king of Egypt, wants to get rid of Moses and his people. He's angry at them, and God delivers them. And in the same way, Jesus is born, um, Herod... The king uh, is threatened by a new king on the scene, and so he wants to kill baby Jesus, and God sends Joseph and Mary to where? To Egypt. And the verse that, that, that Matthew quotes is that out of Egypt I have saved my son, or something similar to that. And so both Moses and Jesus are saved in, in, in and out of Egypt from a tyrannical leader. Number two, both Moses and Jesus survived testing after passing through water. Both Moses and Jesus survived testing after passing through water. For example, uh, as an uh, example of that is Moses delivers the people through the Red Sea. And then they immediately head into the desert where there's a number of temptations that come their way, some trials, and they seem to fail most of them, right? Moses is up on the mountain too long. They quickly abandon faith in God, build a golden calf, worship it, and God's not happy with them. Over and over, they test God. They complain to God. They just fail all of these tests after they have been delivered through water into their new life. 
But Jesus comes, and in Matthew 3, uh, he is baptized, and immediately the Spirit leads him into the desert where he is tempted, just like the Israelites were. And yet Jesus is different, that Jesus passes all of the tests. He resists the temptation. He stands strong. And so Moses and Jesus both survive testing after passing through water. Number three, Jesus' five major sermons mirrored the Torah. And that's just a big Bible word for the first five books of your Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's your Torah. Those five books that Moses wrote, his, his five things that he left in the Bible. And they also echo that if you read Matthew's Gospel, especially, you'll find that there are five significant places where extended periods of time when Jesus taught. And so there's times like the Sermon on the Mount is a collection, a longer group of teaching. In Matthew 10, you find one. In Matthew 13, you find this long extended teaching on parables where there's an extended thing where it begins and ends with a, a bookmark of him teaching. And it goes on into uh, 18 and then to 23 and 26 and, and places like that. And so you get these pictures where there's these five things um, that kind of line up with Moses' life. Number four, both Moses and Jesus had a conversation on top of a mountain during the transfiguration. Um, if you remember the life of Moses, he, uh, people don't, they're afraid of God. So they say, Moses, you go up the mountain, you talk to God for us, you come down and you tell us what God says because we're terrified of him. And so God does and God writes the covenant with his own hand on the stone tablets that Moses has and uh, God gives the covenant to them that way. Jesus in the Gospels um, takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on top of a mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear there again. And in this cloud, um, Jesus is transfigured. His, his humanness kind of breaks away for a moment, and you see his glory. The Gospels say that his face shone like the sun. All right, so you see God's glory shining through Christ in that moment. Um, both of those things parallel similar things. Number five, and this is probably the biggest one. The other ones are, are minor, but this is the biggest one. That Jesus' last supper was during the Passover meal that Moses established. So Moses goes through the Exodus, goes through all the things. Um, but God said, I don't want you to ever forget what happens here. And so we instituted the, the, the Passover feast. What did the Passover feast uh, remember? It remembered a time when God, at the 10th plague, when God told his people, I want you to go slaughter a, a, a lamb, a sheep, and I want you to prepare a meal for your families. I want you to gather in your homes on this night, and, and with some of the blood of that lamb, I want you to go and I want you to put it around your doorpost because my angel is going to pass through the land. And any time he comes to a doorpost and there is blood on the door, he's going to pass over that, and your sons will be spared, your children will be spared. But anyone who does not have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost will lose their firstborn child. And so the 10th plague was a night of great grief and wailing in Egypt. But, it, but the Israelites were spared because of the Passover. And so the Hebrew culture was built around this redeeming uh, blood of the lamb moment. And, and so they always remembered that and celebrated the Passover. And then you come to the life of Jesus. The night that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper... It's based on that same memorial feast. They had gathered in the upper room, and Jesus takes elements that we used to remind them of the Passover, of the Exodus, and he reforms them. The lamb is no longer a sheep, 
the lamb is now the body and the blood of Christ. And, and the blood that saves us is no longer lamb, or the blood of lambs, it's, it's the blood of Christ, that if it's applied to our hearts and our lives, um, it saves us in the same way. And finally, just as a summary of their lives, I think you find that both Moses and Jesus were liberators, were lawgivers, and shepherds. They did all of those things. Their lives, their ministries were centered around being liberators. They set people free. Moses is known for the exodus, right? Jesus is known for uh, saving us from our sin. They were lawgivers. Moses gave them the law. Jesus gives us the new covenant, this, this law of, of love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As he summarizes all of this, this new law of love he gives us, and they were shepherds. Moses was a wonderful shepherd through sometimes very difficult and frustrating times. He was a great shepherd to the people of Israel, and Jesus has the very name of the good shepherd for us. And so Moses and Jesus' life um, have a lot of connections. They are similar in a lot of ways. And so there's lots of angles we could look at this and try to maybe apply, well, what do I do with that for my life? But I want to go back to Deuteronomy 18, and I just want to focus on a phrase that is used in that passage and just ask us to think today about this. Deuteronomy 18, 18 again says, I will raise up for them, for my people, a prophet like you from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it's that last part of that verse that I just want us to think about today. You see, one key aspect of this promise is, is that simple promise that I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. In a world in which there are so many voices screaming at us, demanding and calling for our attention, each claiming they have all the answers to all the questions, we need the clear voice of Jesus more than ever before. We often celebrate the presence of Christ in this season, and we should do that because it is significant that God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus. But sometimes we, we forget that his presence also brought a proclamation. He had words that he brought. He had things that he said, things that he called people to. And so we should celebrate in, in, in the presence of Christ, but we should also celebrate and hear the voice of Jesus that came with that presence it's a voice that comforts us in our hurts, in our struggles, in our lostness. It's a voice that communicates um, God's means, God's way of giving us new life in Christ. It's a voice that confronts our selfishness and sin and calls us to repentance. It's a voice that calls us to live in a new and different way. So when Moses was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah God spoke to Peter, James, and John, and all of them gathered there, words of affirmation, but also a command. In Luke chapter 9, verse 35, Luke's version of this transfiguration moment, you find this verse. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. The thing that God wanted us to do was to listen to his son because he had things to tell us that were very, very important. I was having a conversation with some friends yesterday about a, my brief career as a substitute teacher back when we first moved here to Eldon. Uh, Fridays were my day off at that time, and, and I would take some of those Fridays, and I would go, um, thought I'd 
go serve my community by being a substitute teacher. And um, it wasn't a good experience. I, I love teachers. I have great admiration and respect for all of you. And I mean that sincerely. That is not a joke. <laughs> but I would not make a good teacher because my substitute teaching days were frustrating and hard and they were long. And that was just the kids' um, surveys that they filled out after I was there. And so I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, uh, but they didn't. They, you could tell it on their faces, that's what they were thinking. All right, but so it was long, it didn't last long, because I thought, they don't listen to me, right? I, some of you have magical abilities to make children listen to you, and, and I have, again, great respect for that. But they would never listen to me, and it was hard, and it was frustrating. And so I thought, I'll go be a basketball referee on the side, because that's, a more, that's an easy job, right? And so I did that instead. So I don't know if that was a wise, right decision, but um, nobody listens. Well, they do listen to you. They, they, have, they, they talk back a lot more to you in that profession, too. Um, but uh, most of us, though, know what it's like when a sub, remember those days when you were in school and a substitute teacher showed up in your room, there was a tendency to say, well, this isn't the real deal. This isn't the real person. And so let's make their life miserable. And we would, right? I did that. I, I was guilty of that many, many times in my life of making difficult times for substitute teachers. Um, and so I apologize because I, that was bad of me to do that. And so, uh, but God makes it clear to Peter and to James and John, says Jesus is not just some new guy that you can ignore. What does he say to him? He says to them and that through them to all of us, listen to this guy. Listen to him. Listen because it's important that you do so. You see, we like to make the claim on the blessings of the things that Jesus did for us. And Jesus did beautiful and wonderful things. And we love to hold on to the things that Jesus did for us. But how often do we neglect the things that Jesus said to us? Yes, I, I love to, to build my life on the things he did. But boy, some of the things he said, maybe they challenge me. Maybe they call me to repent. And I don't want to do that. It calls me to challenge my selfishness or my sinfulness. And I don't want to do that. And so I'll hold on to some of the things he's done, but boy, those things he said, those are hard. But God calls us to listen to him. You see, Jesus always claimed when he spoke and when people asked him, well, why do you say the incredible things or the amazing or even the audacious things that you say? And if you look through John, Jesus gets, addresses this issue a lot. For example, in John 7, 16, Jesus, um, you get this example. The Jews were marveling, saying, how is it that this man has learned, has learning when he has never studied? In other words, Jesus didn't come from an academic background. He didn't have letters after his name. He didn't have degrees. He, he's just a carpenter. How in the world does he know all these things that he was amazing the people with? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but it is his who sent me. Again, what did Deuteronomy 18, 18 say? I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them all I command him. So you begin to see that fleshed out in the life of Jesus and Jesus understands that he is in partnership. He is in fellowship with God the Father as God the Son as he does his ministry. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 8 40, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Again, that Trinitarian, that Trinity picture of the fellowship of God the Father with the Son and the Spirit comes into that as well in that chapter. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So that's his way of saying, you know what, ignore my words, but you're ignoring the word of God if you do so. And finally, John 17, verse 8, for I have not given them the words that you gave me, for I have given them, excuse me, them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so there's this constant tension about, well, where is this Jesus guy coming from? Jesus, the new Moses, never claimed or acted or spoke on his own. He always did it in fellowship and partnership with his heavenly Father. And so those claims are bold, though. Why in that one verse it talks about you want to kill me? Why are you seeking to kill me? It's because Jesus made these bold, audacious claims. He claimed to speak for God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to tear down the old foundation of Moses and rebuild it on, on Christ. Those were audacious claims. And people hated him, oftentimes for it. They are bold claims. And even today, if you claim that kind of thing, as C.S. Lewis and others have said, by Jesus saying the things he said about himself, he was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. In other words, he was just a bold-faced liar. He just knew, the, knew he was wrong, but he used it for power, grab or whatever. Or he was a lunatic, he was a little crazy, he has having delusions of grandeur, or he is Lord. Now what you find is that because before the resurrection, people wrestled with that. But after his death and his resurrection, you find this confidence that fills his followers. And there is no doubt to them the answer to that dilemma. They knew he wasn't lying because he told them the truth and he backed it up by rising from the dead. They knew he wasn't crazy. They knew he was the Lord. And so they staked everything on their belief and their con commitments to him as Lord, everything he did and everything he said. And the New Testament writers throughout the New Testament make a clear case that we should believe and obey Jesus as Lord. There's no doubt in their minds as they write to us. For example, and I'll give you one verse here, there's others we could look to, but this one's pretty clear and it's pretty dramatic. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 into early verse 4, you find the writer of Hebrews, writing to a group of people whose lives are difficult. They're being tempted. They're kind of like the Israelites and Jesus in that time of tempting. They're being tested. And it's really, really hard to be faithful to Jesus right now because some of them, as later in the book, their property is being confiscated. Their lives are being threatened. Their, their world is hard. And so it's difficult for them. But he's writing to remind them that the reason you started this journey and the reason that you should continue in this journey it's because of the person whose life you are centered around, and it's Jesus. You, that's why you should keep going. And so they remind us of the brilliance of Jesus and the glory of Jesus in these beautiful phrases. Listen to what they write, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And I'll pause there just a second just to get the picture of there's your, there's your Bible, right? In the first part of that phrase, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's your Old Testament. That's, that's Abraham, Moses, um, David, all those people, right? That's your whole Old Testament. But in these last days, and last days isn't some um, apocalyptic thing. It's just a, a phrase that talks about the time of the Messiah. These last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so there's your New Testament. Your Old Testament prophets, New Testament is Jesus. It all depends about who is God speaking through. And now he is speaking to us through Jesus. And so he goes on to say, well, then why should I listen to this Jesus? Why is this Jesus uh, someone I should listen to? He begins to just list descriptive uh, language to show us who Jesus is. He says things like this. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And I'll pause there a second. Just think about those two things. What's it mean to be an heir of all things? To be an heir means that whatever the father has, if you're the, the father's heir, it all goes to you. And so everything that is God's is Christ's. He makes that connection that they're, they're together. They're united in that. And so there's nothing that the father has that the son does not have. And so that's a good thing because the Bible unpacks this theme of, well, now we are brothers and sisters to Christ in, in a way, and we benefit. And so what the father has and what gives to the son, we share in as well as his people. And so there's this beautiful thing that because Christ is God, basically, he is, and he's worthy of all that God has, uh, there's this beautiful thing. And so he's the heir, but he's also the creator, through whom he also, who also he created the world. And again, in a world in which we are broken and sin has messed up so much of what could be beautiful and what could be good in our world and in our lives and in our own hearts, I think it's helpful that you think of how did God create the world. It's, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's he spoke and it became. He spoke and it became. And now God is speaking to us through Christ. And, and it's not the old creation. It's, it's this new creation of making hearts new, of making lives new. That the same God who could make the old out of nothing and make this beautiful world that we live in, he can all take our messed up, broken, wrecked lives and he can make beautiful things. So he is the creating God. So he is an heir. He is the creator of the world. Verses three and following say this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. You read your Old Testament and every time God shows up in, in front of someone or his angels show up, you get this brilliant glory, right? You get this light that is scary and intimidating. It makes us fall on our faces. And that's what Jesus is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Um, Read the book of Revelation. We get this picture in our minds, rightly so, of, of the meek and mild Jesus, the servant Jesus, the humble Jesus. And that's a great part of Jesus' uh, character and story. But you get to the book of Revelation, and Jesus is no longer the meek and mild Jesus. Now he's got swords, and he's fiery, and, and his feet are bronze, and it's just this uh, picture of power and, and glory. And so Christ is all of that. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Um, you think of how do we make, sometimes you find, like, get, like a coin. How do you make a coin out of metal? You heat it up and you stamp it with something, and it bears the imprint. And so when you look at Jesus, what do you see? You find the exact nature of God. And so while this is a picture oftentimes of God's grandeur and glory, of Christ's grandeur and glory, again, we take it ourselves back to Jesus and his nature of who was Jesus. Yes, he was grand. Yes, he was powerful. But he was so humble. 
and kind to hurting hearts. What's the heart of God? What's the nature of God shown to us through Jesus? It is one of both glory but also humility. Jesus would invite us in that familiar passage in Matthew 11, all you who are weary and burdened, overwhelmed by life, come to me and I'll give you rest. For my burden is light. And that's the nature of of God. Yes, he is powerful in glory, but he is tender and he is small as he needs to be to relate to us in our lost and crazy world. And so he is the imprint of his nature. And this last one is a beautiful one. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, his voice is the glue that holds it all together. You think, what is it that holds this crazy world together? It is his word by his power. And so he gives this and says, why should I listen to Jesus? Well, because Jesus is, the, is God. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his, God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the, by the words of his power. So those are all big, grand things. But then he reminds us of his humanity in this next phrase. After making purification for sins. And so we go from the big, grand Jesus to the crucified, humbled Jesus. The Jesus who, who took on all the junk and the sin and the corruption of the world and it was dumped upon him. And in the moment of utmost humility, he dies for us. How does God make purification or, or make cleansing for sins possible? It's through the cross. And so this big, grand Jesus, but also is so humble. So why should I listen to Jesus? Because he is grand and he is all those things, but he's so humble as well. He's this humble Jesus who who saw you in your messed up sinful state and he said to you, you are not too messed up for me. You are not too broken for me to fix. You're not too dirty for me to love. You're not too guilty and full of shame for me not to die for. And so he would lay down everything to make purification for sins possible out of his humility, as Philippians 2 describes for us. And then because of that, we go back to his big grand seat now. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we've talked about that the last few weeks in some of those psalms that we looked at, of how Jesus sits now in a position of authority once again. And so when the book of Hebrews says, why should you listen to Jesus? It makes the case of the greatness of who Jesus is. And so God has spoken to us through the person of Jesus, who is God and who is human and who speaks to us from those perspectives. And so I just would simply ask us today as we finish here, um, how well are you doing at listening to his voice? We probably, many of us, at least here today, could probably regurgitate some of the cool facts of what Jesus has done for us. And those are awesome things. But is our heart sensitive, are our ears open to hearing his voice when he calls us and he speaks to us and, and speaks to our hearts and our natures and our, our sinfulness? Are we listening to him? There are a lot of things that distract us from that. Um, we've talked last week about how... Um, As you read through the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that you find is that um, Jesus is a beautiful teacher. And I just read this one in Luke chapter 8 this week. 
um, in verse 12, uh, he's talking about the parable of the sower with, with the hard soil and the rocky soil and the thorny soil and the good soil. And as Jesus unpacks that, I think there are so many things that make it hard for us to listen. And these are, this is what Jesus says. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. And we've all been there, haven't we? You know what? I, I received something from God, and, and yet it gets hard all of a sudden. Maybe it's persecuted, or someone makes fun of you, or you have to really risk something to be faithful. In a time of testing, they fall away. And so that thing can make us stop listening to the Lord. The seed also, he goes on to say, that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries and the riches of life and the pleasures of life, and they do not mature. Surely all of us know times in our life when worry or desire to have more or desire to experience more has caused us to stop listening to Jesus. And we quit maturing, we quit growing, we quit listening because worries and riches and pleasures and testings all work against us. But he says, but the good seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And I just wonder, as I look at my own life and see so many times when I Stop listening to the voice of Jesus and what it says about me and for me and to me because of things like that. Testings, worries, riches, pleasures, and all of a sudden my attention is not here, it is somewhere else. And I think that's a common thing for all of us. And so when the Lord speaks to you about your worth, there are other voices that tell you about your worth some would say that your worth is only earned because of what you can do or what you have or what you drive or where you live or what you wear or the goodness of your life. And only good people are worth much. There's a lot of voices in the world that communicate that to you. But the voice of Jesus is not going to tell you that because the voice of Jesus is going to start off with the bad news that we are all sinners that fall desperately short of the glory of God. But... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so our worth does not come from ourselves. It comes from the love and the worth that he sees in us and for us. And so that whole purification of, for sins on the cross says to us that your life has worth, not because of anything that you do or can't do, all those things. It's because of his value that he puts in you because he was willing to die for you. He loves you that much. Maybe it's his voice that speaks to you about your values or about your character or about your ethics or about your decisions that you're making in your life right now. The Lord speaks to us about a lot of things. And I would just ask us today, are we listening? Are you listening to him? Jesus talked oftentimes in his teaching, he would use this little phrase that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there wasn't a problem with people having no ears in his day, right? We all have ears. The problem is not the ears, it's what we do with them. And so he would challenge us that all of us who have ears, may we hear. May we be intentional to listen to him. 
to be intentional to, to pray through and to work through the testing and the worries and the desires of riches and the deceitfulness of riches and, and pleasures and all the things that they distract us with. May we have ears that listen through, that fight through all of the things to hear the voice of the Lord in this season. Would you pray with me, please?